Hey everybody, welcome to this episode of The Full Life. Today is going to be a powerful and poignant episode, especially at this time in our country. We are gonna be talking about abortion and how to have a pro-life uh, communication and dialogue with pro-choice advocates and how to talk with empathy and love. It's gonna be a really dynamic show. Different Christian perspectives coming together to have important conversations about our faith and help you live in the fullness of life God wants for you each and every day. This is The Full Life with Joseph Mancuso, Carolyn Pankella, Hank Johnson, and Jenny Stivale. Come join the conversation. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Full Life. We are always happy to see you. We are always happy that people are here to receive the fullness of life from God. And we hope that we can bring a little bit more of God to you each and every day, bring you an abundance of life as God desires for you. Now, today's topic is a tricky one to talk about in this particular time, especially with the overturning of Roe v. Wade by the Supreme Court recently. And there are a lot of emotions on either side of the aisle. Certainly today's show is not aimed to inflame any more emotions or intends to be hurting anyone, but it does aim to talk about this difficult issue in a meaningful and poignant way. And hear our hearts when we really desire first and foremost, healing and dignity for each and every human on this planet. And so we take the meaning of pro-life very seriously as we enter into today's discussions with two pretty awesome and dynamic guests. But first, let's start off with a moment of encouragement and reflection with Jerome Bailey Jr. I just wanted to encourage everyone with, as we're now, you know, our culture and uh, the time that we're in and we know about Roe versus Wade and these, uh, this court decision that, that has a lot of us viewing things differently. And when we view things differently, our emotions start to, t- uh, you know, to pour out. And then it's easy for us to tell other people what they should and should not do, how they should and should not react to things. But in the midst of all of that, it's important that we acknowledge each other and acknowledge ourselves and acknowledge our emotions because our our emotions are true. They're what we feel, but at the same time, they're just weaved within an issue that impacts a lot of different types of people from a lot of different walks of life. And as I was reflecting on it, I just opened up to Isaiah 58 and I'll just read, read through um, what what blessed me, where it's not talking specifically to this, but it just gives perspective uh, and it gave perspective to me. And it, it started uh, and it was about true and false worship. And it was Isaiah 58. It says, shout with the voice of a trumpet blast. Shout aloud. Don't be timid. Tell my people Israel of their sins. Yet they act so pious. They come to the temple every day and seem delighted to learn all about me. They act like a righteous nation that will never abandon the laws of his God. They asked me to take action on their behalf, pretending they want to be near me. We have fasted before you, they say. Why aren't you impressed? We have been very hard on ourselves and you don't even notice it. I will tell you why I respond. It's because you are fasting to please yourselves. Even while you fast, you keep oppressing your workers. What good is fasting when you keep on fighting and quarreling? This kind of fasting will never get you anywhere with me. 
you humble yourselves by going through the motions of penance, bowing your heads like reeds bending in the wind. You dress in burlap and cover yourselves with ashes. Is this what you call fasting? Fasting? Do you really think this will please the Lord? And, you know, right from that point, it goes on to say, no, this is the kind of fasting I want. And this is, you know, God speaking to the people. Free those who are wrongly in prison. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free and remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry and give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them and do not hide from relatives who need your help. Then your salvation will come like the dawn and your wounds will quickly heal. Your godliness will lead you forward and the glory of the Lord will protect you from behind. And that was so powerful to me uh, because, you know, as we have these different perspectives, we can easily become righteous, self-righteous. And we can easily become spewing, uh, spewing what some will take as hate and others will take as right. And, and that's the law. And that's what God's word is. But when it comes down to it, God is a God is about the heart position and about perspective. And I think God challenges the people here. And, and one thing we could take from it is to challenge ourselves. How are we reflecting God? Because the only job that you're really here to do is to love people and to look deep in ourselves to see if we have a hard time loving someone what is that barrier and god can you free me from it so that i can reflect you and be loving you loving like you and be a vessel to your people thank you so much jerome for that reflection and now let's introduce today's guest emily albrecht is a speaker writer and coach with equal rights institute at ERI, she is using her educational background to write, develop curriculum, and teach pro-life advocates how to change minds, save lives, and promote a culture of life in their communities. Emily is also on the board of directors for Cradle of Hope, an organization that provides financial and material assistance to families and pregnant women. Please welcome Emily Albrecht. So the day the decision, the decision came down from the Supreme Court, um, I will say I had um, a mixture of certainly I was p peaceful about the decision. I was, you know, relatively I happy. I believe it was the right decision. But I also understood how much fear and pain and, and reaction there was going to be. And there was some people went real out into celebration right away. And it, it, it's not wrong to celebrate, but I was sort of hesitant because I said, you know, how is this going to, in the next part of this sort of pro-life uh, communication, how is that going to help things? So, I mean, I guess where do, how do, how do we communicate from here? How do we continue this dialogue now that this is so raw, and especially at this time? Yeah. Dialoguing is, I think, at its utmost importance in these days, right after the decision and the months coming forward, because you're right, there are a lot of people, a lot of women in our country who are feeling very, quite honestly, betrayed. They're feeling like the government has taken away something that they believed was their right for the last 50 years. And not only was it their right, but it's something that was going to severely affect many of their lives. It's affecting their behavior. It's affecting how they're going to be able to grow as individuals. It's going to affect their education or their finances, or I mean, it's going to affect them dramatically. And so quite honestly, I would be weirded out if they weren't upset and expressing that 
that upsetness. That would mean that they didn't really think this was that important. I've known for years how important they believed this right was to them. And so it is perfectly understandable that people are having the reactions that they are. And at the same time, on the pro-life side, it is our job if we're going to make abortion not only illegal but unthinkable throughout this country that we have to have those conversations that are going to change hearts and minds. Because without Roe versus Wade, that means that individual states get to make their own laws about abortion. And so that means that individual voters matter in a way that they didn't before. And having those conversations changing hearts and minds around you is what's actually going to affect the law. And so we have this duty to have conversations if we're ultimately going to make abortion illegal. And we also have people that are hurting. And that's the exact moment when we need to be having those conversations. We need to be there for them. We need to give them the space to express how they're feeling. And so that means just for me personally, the conversations I've been having over these days since that decision came out are very, very focused on love and empathy and trying to understand where pro-choice people are coming from and how they're feeling about this decision. Yes, I am here to make pro-life arguments. That's what I do. But my number one goal is to love people in those conversations. And right now, pro-choice people need a lot of love and support. And women in difficult pregnancies need that love and support. They need to see a side to the pro-life movement that Quite honestly, stereotypes say there isn't. They say there's not that side to the pro-life movement. And we have this opportunity to break that down and be both incredibly intelligent and incredibly loving. I guess that was my question is how do you do that? Because I think that like, yeah, this is, um, I think this is one of the most complex issues that's made very black and white. I mean, if you look at the pro-life movement, most Christians supported choice up until maybe the 80s. And that's tricky for some of us, right? Um, you look at it church history-wide, um, when did life begin? We don't really have a good answer. Um, it's just probably in the last 20, 30 years, we think we have a good answer. So how do you have these conversations? I'm not gonna provide any tips right now that aren't things that could be applied to literally any conversation about a controversial issue. This is just 101, how do you talk to people? And that means learning how to ask good clarification questions. Like we all love to assume things about other people instead of actually getting to know the person standing right in front of us. One of my absolute favorite quotes from the Bible is from Colossians 4, 5 through 6. It says, conduct yourself with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. I think that is how Jesus would talk about abortion if he was here today. He would conduct himself with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. He would not just avoid talking about abortion because it's too controversial, which I see way too many people that are Christians doing today. They just want to avoid talking about it, especially church leaders. That's not what Jesus would do. But my favorite part is that second part. He would know how to respond to each person. And that to me means getting to know the person standing right in front of him and what their needs are, what their concerns are, what their worldview is, what experiences they've had in their life that brought them to this position. He wouldn't just respond to some stereotype of an idiot on the other side. That's not what he would do. He would love this person. And not only does that bring someone's walls down, when they feel like you are genuinely trying to understand them, you are asking really good questions and just silencing your inner monologue, really listening and taking in what they're saying, not only does that bring their walls down, but it also then enables you to make better arguments because you're going to be able to make a more persuasive case when you can address the real reasons they have that view. 
And so not only does it get their walls down, but it enables you to make better arguments that can now reach through that wall because it isn't there. And that's how I think Jesus would behave. And that's how I want to train pro-life people to behave. I love, I love what you're saying about getting that conversation going. And, you know, a lot of the common arguments that we hear is a lot of this, um, it's my body, my choice. And a woman losing their rights of their bodily autonomy. And I just would love to hear, like, how would you handle, how would you encourage us to maybe have that conversation? Certainly. So bodily autonomy arguments are the number one argument today mm -hmm. that pro-choice people are making. I love to help pro-life people kind of understand the anatomy of a conversation about abortion, first and foremost, because there's really two arguments that are going on here. And in order for the pro-choice position to be true, in order for abortion to be fine, only one of the two things must be true. Either the fetus is not a human person like you or I. And so, of course, abortion would be fine. It'd be just like getting a mole removed, right? And so either the fetus is not a human person like you or I, or a woman's right to her bodily autonomy essentially trumps any rights that the fetus would have. So in the same way that uh, I shouldn't be forced to donate my kidney to someone else, even if that person's going to die if I don't do it, maybe I'm a bad person if I don't, don't donate my kidney to them, but I shouldn't be in trouble with the law. I shouldn't be legally forced to donate my kidney to someone else. That means that if, if we make that analogy to pregnancy, pro-choice people would say, well, the fetus is like that person that needs an organ and a woman shouldn't be forced to essentially donate her body to this other person who's trying to use it. So we assume in the second category of arguments that the fetus is already a person. So either in order for the pro-choice position to be true, either the unborn is not a human person or... It doesn't actually matter if the unborn is a human person, because even if it is, a woman shouldn't be forced to use her body to support that unborn child, that fetus. And so when you think about pro-choice arguments, I think most pro-life people assume, and this has been historically true, that pro-choice people are talking about this camp. They're talking about whether or not the fetus is a person. And so most pro-life people are very equipped to talk about the biology of the unborn, even the philosophy of the unborn to some extent, talking about what makes human persons valuable. However, most pro-life people are not really equipped to talk about the second category. They're not equipped to talk about those bodily autonomy arguments. What does it mean to have rights over your own body? And how do you effectively discuss that in relation to the issue of abortion? And so if you look at all of my online content, I talk a lot about that second category. And I'm happy to dive in and kind of give you an explanation for that. But I just want to make sure that the viewers have an idea of kind of what are the two things going on here? And ultimately, what makes the pro-life position harder to prove in theory than the pro-choice position is that we have to prove both categories. Pro-choice people only have to prove one or the other. We have to prove both, right? We have to prove that both the fetus is a human person that deserves rights like you or I, and that a woman's right to her body does not give you the right to have an abortion, regardless of what the unborn is. And so that makes what I do, being an effective pro-life apologist, more challenging, because we have to be able to talk about both categories of those arguments. Within bodily autonomy arguments, there's really two categories of things going on here. Pro-life apologists, and this was called phrase coined by Trent Horn, who's one of our, our great friends at Equal Rights Institute. Trent Horn has categorized bodily autonomy arguments into two kinds. The first one is called a sovereign zone argument. And that is essentially what my body, my choice as a slogan is. My body, my choice represents the idea that my body is my sovereign zone. 
In other words, why this is called a sovereign zone argument, right? My body is my sovereign zone. And so I can do anything I want with anything inside of my body. Of course, since the fetus is inside my body, it would follow that abortion has to be fine because I am making a decision about what happens within my own body. The sovereign zone argument of the two kinds of bodily autonomy arguments that I'll briefly talk about here is the weaker of the two. Like if it was my job to like explain to pro-choice people how to make better arguments for abortion, this is not the argument that I would tell them to use. And it ultimately ends up being a really weak argument because it claims too much, claims way too much. It is quite clear that you do not have the right to do anything you want with anything inside your body. And quite frankly, pro-choice people don't think that either. That's why the first step that I always use to respond to the sovereign zone position is by asking what a pro-choice person thinks about restrictions on abortion. Because statistically, we know that 72% of pro-choice people, according to a 2019 NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll study that I have memorized conveniently, 72% of pro-choice people think that there should be restrictions on when abortion happens during pregnancy. They're really uncomfortable with late-term abortions, abortions happening after viability, things like that. But there's inherently a contradiction here. If you're someone that believes that there should be a restriction on abortion, but you're using to justify your position, my body, my choice, that doesn't quite work. Because of course, if my body is my sovereign zone, if I can do anything I want with anything inside my body, if that principle is true, then you must be able to have an abortion all the way up until the moment of birth because the fetus is in, still inside your body, right? You see how that view is inherently contradictory and most pro-choice people don't actually agree with the slogan they're using. They just don't realize that fact. And so the first step I always use to respond to the sovereign zone position is to point out the inconsistency in their own argument and to help them realize that that's not really a good way to ground abortion rights. There's further places I can go from there, but to give you an overview of kind of the second category of arguments within bodily autonomy is the idea of a right to refuse position. This is another phrase coined by Trent Horn. And the idea of right to refuse is that you don't have the right to do anything you want with anything inside your body. Okay, that, that's way too much. But you do minimally have the right to refuse the use of your body to another person who is trying to use it. So that whole kidney donation example I gave at the beginning, that's a right to refuse position. In other, why, in other words, if someone was dying of kidney failure, I shouldn't be legally forced to donate my kidney to them. And therefore, pregnancy is very similar and a woman shouldn't be forced to essentially donate her body to a fetus who's trying to use it. This whole category of arguments was originally created by Judith Jarvis Thompson, who's a very famous pro-choice philosopher. And it was kind of originated in a thought experiment that she wrote called The Violinist. And if you're a pro-life person and you've seen any sort of abortion debates online, people will very frequently throw around the words, the violinist. I'd be happy to fully explain it, but that's basically what the violinist is referring to. It's that right to refuse position where ultimately what I'm going to do as a pro-life advocate to kind of dig in there is, first of all, point out common ground that I do think people have the right to refuse the use of their bodies. I don't think people should be legally forced to donate their kidney to others. So this is a great opportunity to do that common ground piece I was talking about before and spend several minutes talking about what I do believe is the importance of bodily autonomy. And I'm not losing debate points by going and talking about that for a second. And then ultimately, I end up pointing out the differences between an abortion and refusing to donate one's kidney. Because ultimately, in pregnancy, there is no 
I just refuse to help you option. Like if someone's dying of kidney failure, I can refuse to help them and they are going to die of their existing disease. But that's not what's happening in an abortion. Abortion is the killing of a perfectly healthy human. And there is no I refuse to help you option. That doesn't exist in pregnancy. And there's also other scenarios that it doesn't exist in, which I'll often use to kind of help show them why this argument ultimately doesn't work. So that's my super brief overview that was not so brief about bodily autonomy arguments. Well, I think one of the things you mentioned is viability. Um, that's kind of what I said in my first question, which is really, really hard, right? So um, just thinking about when does life begin? Is it conception? Is it heartbeat? Is it when the child feels pain? Is it when brain activity happens? Um, like I even said, in church history, literally up until the modern era, it wasn't even until the child had breath or a couple of days after, right? So what are the most convincing arguments about when exactly life begins? And, and then how do you have that conversation? So within the kind of the question of when does life begin, there's really, again, two categories of arguments there. There's the biological question of when human life begins, and then there's the more philosophical question of when does valuable life begin, right? When does someone become a person? See, pro-choice people tend to use the word human and the word person to mean two different things. And most pro-life people, like they just use them synonymously, which is not helpful. <laughs> this is why a lot of pro-life people get really confused really easily. And so first of all, anytime a pro-choice person says something to me like, no one knows when life begins, which is a really common pro-choice phrase, I will always first bond with a clarification question. I'll say, I want to understand your view, but it sounds like you might mean one of two different things. Do you mean that no one knows when biological life begins? Or do you mean something more philosophical? Like, we don't know when a person with rights begins to exist. They will almost always, I would say 99% of the time, answer the latter. Most of the time, they're not really talking about biology. And that's because the biology here is really, really clear. It is true that years and years ago, in like all of church history, we didn't know much about the biology of the unborn. And that's because we just purely didn't have the technology to actually know what was going on inside of a uterus. But now we really do know. It is not any sort of controversial statement in the biology or embryology world to say that from fertilization, minimally a living member of the species Homo sapiens exists. I am deliberately using purely scientific language here. I am not trying to imply value by any of that. That's the philosophical question, right? But from a biology perspective, we know that the unborn are living, they are a member of the species Homo sapiens, and they are a whole organism. They are not just part of an organism like a skin cell or a sperm cell would be. Like It is its own human organism on a self-directed path of maturity. So biologically speaking, it is a human. The other piece is far more interesting. The question of whether the unborn is philosophically a person with rights. And that brings us to a question about what is it that makes all of us have any sort of rights? In other words, what makes you and I a person? And so what I usually like to do when I have that kind of a conversation is I'll actually just put abortion on the shelf for a minute. Like, let's just not talk about abortion. Let's talk about something that I think you and I, pro-choice person, probably are going to agree a lot about. And that's equality. I think equality is incredibly important in our society. And every single pro-choice person I've ever talked to has also been highly concerned about equality. Like, that's just very commonly an overlap, right? And so if we put abortion on the shelf and we talk about what is it 
that actually grounds equality? What is it that makes it equally wrong for someone to just kill any human adult and any human newborn? And what makes squirrels not part of that kind of equal rights club? When we talk about that and we investigate, what is it that grounds equality? The only logical answer that I can come up with, and I'll work through this question with pro-choice people and talk about potential answers they come up with, but the only logical answer that really makes sense of what we know of the world around us is that something like our human nature is what's granting equal rights. There is something about being human that is so incredibly important that makes it wrong to kill any other human. And so we take abortion back off the shelf and we have to ask ourselves, does the unborn possess that same thing that the rest of us in this equal right to life club share? And the answer is that they do. And that means that abortion is essentially a human rights violation. I mean, that means that in order for me to be consistently pro-equality, that means that I have to be pro-life because I have to be anti-violence against all innocent people and the unborn logically have to be considered people. I have another tougher question for you here. Um, there's been lots of posts and memes about ectopic pregnancies, miscarriage, placental abruption. Um, these are serious and harmful medical conditions that women, you know, affect women and how abortion is part of their treatment. So I guess what is the truth about this and will restricted access to abortion negatively affect women going through this? I just want to hear you talk about this because I know these are concerns of some people. And they're incredibly valid concerns. Mm -hmm. I understand why people would be incredibly scared that they're not going to be able right. to get the medical treatment that they need because there are situations in which women's lives are at risk in pregnancy. There are rare situations, but they are real situations. And sometimes I try, I hear pro-life people say things about how rare it is and therefore we don't need to talk about it. And that's ridiculous. That's still thousands of women every year. They are real women. They deserve to be discussed. And so first and foremost to the pro-lifers out there, stop saying that. Stop saying this is incredibly rare and be willing to go there and actually talk about these hard cases. So the first thing that I want to say is that I do not want any woman to die because of her pregnancy. I think we need to do absolutely everything that we can to help that woman. If a woman's life is truly in danger, if she is going to die, then I think she has the right to take medical action to save her own life. Now, there are two patients here because the fetus is also a person who deserves an equal right to life. And so that means that basically we're talking about triage. This is a case where we have two lives. And if we can save them both, I believe we have a duty to save them both. But if that's not possible and we can only save one, then yes, Let's save the woman. If this is an ectopic pregnancy, that embryo is not going to survive. What literally is happening in an ectopic pregnancy is the embryo has been implanted in the fallopian tube. And if it grows in the fallopian tube, the fallopian tube will burst and the embryo will die and the woman will die. And now we're at a score of, of zero, okay? I have two lives, I'm trying to save them both. And so we should absolutely save the woman. The embryo is not going to survive in that fallopian tube. And so there are a variety of procedures there that we can do to get that embryo out and save the woman's life. And if there was a way to save that embryo's life, I believe we need to do that. Right now, we don't have technology to do that. And I would love us to have that technology very soon. But there are cases later on in pregnancy where something can go wrong and we can do a C-section, get that fetus out of there, get that child out of there, and we can successfully save both lives. And so we need to do everything we can with these two patients here, just as we would in any other kind of triage scenario. 
One of one of the things that has been on my heart in and I've learned through research and talking with people on this show, I've asked our other guests as well, and it really is that we do know statistically uh, through research that abortions negatively dis uh, or negatively affect uh, lower socioeconomic groups uh, and, and areas in our country. And so I, my question is now what can we do as a pro-life community and pro-life advocates now that we're, we haven't been doing or, or not doing well enough in order to make sure that they have access to care, they have access to options, so they feel empowered in, in ways that maybe they haven't yet? Yeah, there are so many people who do not want to choose abortion. I, I always tell pro-life people, no one has abortion in their like five-year plan, okay? No one is wanting to do that in their life. Most women who have abortions feel incredibly trapped. They feel like they are in a situation in their life where they have no other option. And the biggest factor, if you look at uh, research that's been done, studies that have been done of women who have had abortions, the single biggest factor for what caused them to do that was financial concerns. And so, yes, you are right. The people in lower socioeconomic statuses are going to be disproportionately affected by being unable to get an abortion. And so that means that the pro-life movement has to, and I believe can, step up and help to fill that gap. And I think there's two primary ways that we need to do it. Number one is by expanding the resources that we already have. Pregnancy resource centers are incredible. They provide a ridiculous amount of free services to women and families and children during pregnancy and long after pregnancy. I work with pregnancy resource centers all around the country all of the time. And most of them continue serving women for years after birth. I was just working with a center the other day who still has a client whose child is eight years old now, and they are still serving her with free services that none of this pro-lifers are just pro-birth. Okay. That would, that's not the case when I am looking at a pregnancy center who is serving this woman who has an eight-year-old child. And they've been serving her consistently for the last eight years. We have those systems in place. We have pregnancy resource centers four to one to abortion clinics in this country. But that is not enough. We need to expand. We can get more pregnancy resource centers. We need more funding. Imagine if all of the funding from abortion clinics went into those pregnancy resource centers, how many more supportive services we could offer, right? We're offering free medical services. We're offering all sorts of support groups, all this material assistance. I'm also on the board of an organization that kind of provides more or less a parent organization to all those local pregnancy centers. So if a local pregnancy center, say, has a woman who is experiencing uh, homelessness because she's about to be kicked out, evicted from her apartment, she can't make rent. And that local pregnancy center, they don't have the money in their small place to give her everything that she needs. They come to us. They apply from us and say, hey, we need big bucks to help this woman that we're servicing. And then we will provide that. So there are all of these local agencies that are creating those relationships with women, providing medical services, providing all these support classes, parenting classes, support work groups, all of those resources, along with organizations like the one I'm on the board for, Cradle of Hope, who help to provide those bigger items to pregnancy centers. So we have this network, but we need to expand it. We need to be able to service more women with more resources consistently. So I think both that needs to happen. I said there's two things. And the second thing is that we need to be providing actual government programs that can help on a greater level. I'm not here to endorse specific kinds of government programs, but I do believe that every pro-life person 
needs to seriously examine what kinds of programs they would be willing to endorse and support. And so I'll be totally transparent about some of the research that I have been doing lately to just see what I as a voter would be interested in doing. So one example of that is that currently Medicaid covers all prenatal childbirth and postpartum expenses up to 60 day days afterwards for women that live below 133% of the poverty line. I think that's wonderful. I think that needs to be expanded. I think that threshold should probably go higher. And I've been doing a lot of research. I don't know what that percentage should be, but I think that it needs to be less expensive in our country to give birth than it is to give an get an abortion. Like currently it is a lot less expensive to get an abortion than it is to give birth. And that's a problem. And I want to fix that. And one way that I've been looking at it is trying to figure out, okay, would it work to expand Medicaid? How could we do that? That's something I've been personally exploring. I'm also interested in expanding maternal uh, maternity and paternity leave. I want to make sure that companies don't have this incentive to pay someone to get an abortion. Because right now it is way cheaper for a company to say, I'll pay for you to travel across the country to get an abortion. That way I don't have to pay your maternity leave. That is a huge problem. We need to reverse those corporate incentives so that families don't feel like they have to run back into the workforce afterwards. They have that support for them. And we also just fix the wider problem of this kind of two income trap. Uh, Elizabeth Warren is famous for kind of bringing this up. And while I disagree with Elizabeth Warren about a lot of things, I think she was right to point this out that we have this society where you must have two incomes to survive in most families. And I don't think that's healthy. I want people who want to be able to stay home with their children to be able to. I want us to have the kind of programs that enable that so that no one is trying to run back into the workforce if that's not what they desire to do. So I've been exploring that those kind of programs as well as what it would take to really enforce prenatal child support laws. Most people in the United States have no idea that prenatal child support laws exist. Every single state in the country has prenatal child support laws. I know, crazy. You had no idea. I, I didn't had either. No, I had no idea. I have never Every heard that. single state. Yes, you can be forced to play child support while that child is still in utero. And yet no one knows that. And so that means it's not enforced. Women don't know to apply for it. People don't know that they can get it. And that needs to be common knowledge and needs to be actually enforced. If there is a man who gets a woman pregnant and he wants to run, Obviously, I don't agree with that. He shouldn't do that. But at the very minimum, he must be forced to play prenatal child support laws. That should not be completely on the woman to pay for all of her medical expenses during pregnancy. If he's going to be forced to pay for it after childbirth, he needs to be forced to pay for it before. And we have the laws. So let's enforce them, people. That's, that's like mind blowing because I've seen I've seen things on social media I'm like, well, he should pay child support from the minute it's consent. Well, you should. You can. You, yes. you should be. Actually you can. The law right now. But <laughs> No one knows that this is a thing. So those are just some examples of the things that I've been exploring. Again, I am not here to endorse specific things, but I want to call on pro-life people, do your research, figure out regardless of what your politics are, go investigate what is it I would be willing to support. And you don't you think that we also need to make adoption not so expensive? I, I mean, Absolutely. It is, I've got so many friends who cannot have children. I mean, they have tried you know, and they're trying to adopt, but it is so much money. And it's like, we've got to get this changed. I mean, and there's children, mm -hmm. it's year after year, they're sitting, waiting to be adopted. And it just can't happen. It, the, it's just crazy. I mean, it's a year, years of process. I mean, we need to get in there and dive and go, let's get this. We need to get this fixed. That's a fantastic example. I'm adding that to my list. Please. <laughs> 
So um, one common criticism for pro-life advocacy is that um, it's really actually pro-birth and not necessarily pro-life. You know, so for example, it focuses on abortion, but not stuff like, you know, gun control or child care, health care, um, parental leave, foster care, adoption, sex education, or even to the other side of life, which is, you know, death penalty or, or things like war. So how do we be pro-life and we are kind of maybe a little bit more nuanced or a little bit more um, not pro-life on some of these other things. So in your view, do these criticisms have some level of legitimacy? Um, and then how do we have conversations about where we maybe have fallen short in the past and, and how do you recommend that we do so moving forward? So purely intellectually speaking for a second, there is nothing that requires someone that is against abortion to be for any of those other things that you listed. Purely the stance that I think innocent humans should not be killed on a massive scale does not automatically require you to be against anything else. It's incredibly hypocritical if you don't have a view about any of those other things. But just from the argument standpoint, I think it is possible to be pro-life, as in against abortion, but not share any views about gun control or war or sex ed or contraceptives or like any other things on this epic laundry list that a lot of people try to throw out. However, I do think that pro-life people should have a consistent view of caring about human life in general. And so I, for one, like just speaking for myself, am very pro-gun control. I think there are a lot of problems with gun culture in the U.S. today, and I have no problem talking about that. But it doesn't have to necessarily follow from my pro-life stance, because being pro-life is in being anti-abortion purely makes sense as my number one issue because of the massive scale of it. Like if I'm right about what abortion is, it is the single biggest human rights violation of our time. There are literally millions of humans that are being killed and it is illegal in our country to kill them every single year. Like it's staggering. And so it makes sense why that would be my number one issue because of what I believe it to be. But I should also be speaking out about other things. And we should care about all human life. I do believe that's what being pro-life is. And so I don't have a problem with using my platform to talk about those other kinds of issues I care about. Not to mention the fact that as I already, already spoke about, pregnancy resource centers and lots of pro-life people do far more things than just talk about abortion. I mean, pregnancy centers are serving women for years after birth and are serving many women who are not even pregnant. Another pregnancy center that I've worked with many times, I was just a talking to one of their employees and she was telling me about a client that they had come in for a pregnancy test and it came back negative. And so you would think pregnancy center would be like, okay, bye. Don't need to help you. Cause I mean, the whole point is we're just serving babies, right? We only want to get the board. That's not what happened at all. They offered her STD and SDI testing. Then they were able to offer her treatment for that. She also started doing life coaching and helping to kind of get her life back on track because she wasn't in a good place. And that's why she came in for a pregnancy test, right? Because she thought she was in an unplanned pregnancy and she was scared. And so this pregnancy center still offered resources to her and worked with her for a very long time. It is still working with her now. And she wasn't even pregnant. So this idea that pro-life people don't care about other people, about general life or about children after they're born, I mean, not to mention the fact I've also seen plenty of studies and I, I don't have a, a citation at this exact moment, but I've seen studies that people who are pro-life are something like double or maybe even three times more likely to adopt or be foster parents than people who don't identify as pro-life. 
Like we can and we should step up in these other areas. It doesn't require of me by the logicalness of my pro-life position that I have to be willing to be a foster parent. But the reality is pro-life people are and we need to step up and we need to show people that we care about all human life because it is the right thing to do. Yeah, and I think the important thing there is not even intellectually, right? I think this is a theological question. You know, we're talking and appealing primarily to people who, at least from my experience, pro-life people tend to be Christians, right? Um, so to me, the theological question is where the other criticisms are legit. It might not be logic that... So for me personally, if you are, you know, pro-life with abortion, it makes no sense theologically to be pro-life and, and support war, Right. And support um, death penalty, for example, um, because I think that we as Christians are supposed to be the life people. So I, I don't know if you want if you have any I don't know your theological background, but I, just, I was just curious, too, as a follow up. Is this also a theological thing? Because you speak a lot about innocent. Um, but we as Americans, for example, have been at war over 93 percent of our existence and not everyone has been killed in those wars. Um, has been someone who quote unquote deserved it, which even if they did, that's tricky because Jesus says, love your enemies. But I'm just wondering if you have any theological basis for some of our pro-life position. Um, yeah, I was just curious about that. I think that anyone can be pro-life and I work with many atheists in the pro-life movement and I'm so glad they're here. And so I don't think that you have to be a Christian or that God even has to exist for the pro-life position to be true. And that's why when you hear me talk about abortion, I am using completely secular arguments. But as a Christian, that means my obligation goes further. I agree with you, Hank. I think now I have an obligation to do all sorts of other things besides just argue against abortion because I believe that human life is valuable. And that's why I have wider views against violence. That's why I am against the death penalty. And I've spoken about that. That's why I have views about gun control. That's why I am against so many wars. I mean, I, I believe that just war is a thing, hypothetically, but we could have a debate all day about whether or not we ever actually had one. Um, and so I feel obligated to speak out about those other things because I am a Christian, but not because it logically follows from my position on abortion, which is purely secular, because I want to make sure that we can make abortion illegal today, regardless of other people's views. And as a side note, convincing people about abortion, having those conversations often turns into conversation about religion later. And it is frequently kind of a uh, pre-evangelizing conversation to talk about abortion with someone in a secular way. Really what Equal Rights Institute is known for in the pro-life movement is providing pro-life apologetics training. We exist okay. to help pro-life people have these conversations. And so that means that the rest That's of the pro-life movement comes to us to learn how to have these conversations, both how to use those practical dialogue tips to get someone's walls down, and then what are the arguments I should be making and how do I make them effectively? I mean, that's literally all of our online content. And so what I do as a large part of my job at Equal Rights Institute is train young people in having these conversations. I run our affiliate group program, which is a program by which young high school, college, and local church pro-life groups will affiliate with us in order for us to provide them with tons of free apologetics training and mentorship, and then support as they go out and start doing outreach into their local community. How I got into doing pro-life work was through being in one of those clubs when I was in college. I was in a club that went through ERI's apologetics training and went out. We would literally set up a table on my college campus weekly 
every single week, my entire time of college, and have conversations with the pro-choice students on our campus. We were changing hearts and minds and exploding the pro-life club in size by students coming out of the woodwork wanting to engage in these conversations, students changing their minds and becoming pro-life and wanting to tell other people about that. We were having those conversations and we completely transformed the culture of our college campus. And now in my job at ERI, I work with all of these groups all over the country and quite frankly, all over the world. We just expanded. We have two groups that are in Denmark now to college pro-life clubs there that are out having these conversations with their campuses. I really think the way to reach young people is with young people reaching young people. And now let's turn to the fullness of prayer. I pray by journaling. Journaling has been a wonderful way for me to kind of center myself in prayer because I'm one of those people that gets distracted really easily. And if I am just, you know, sitting somewhere praying, my mind will often wander. That's a, that's a personal problem that I have. And one way I've been able to channel that wandering is by doing it in the form of journaling. A, that kind of pencil to paper speaking to God has helped me to just stay focused, stay on track. And it's not journaling in in the sense of other kinds of just like diary journaling. Like I am essentially writing out what my prayers are. As many people speak them aloud, I am physically writing them. And that just helps me to stay grounded and connected. And I always bring that prayer journal with me whenever I go to a church service. And so I have it there. I am reading through the prayers that I have written in the past. And I will always take a few minutes after that service to write down what I felt God was speaking to me in that service. And so that has been a really really tangible way for me to feel connection to God through my prayer and help me to really stay grounded during that time. That, That prayer journal has made all the difference in my personal prayer life. I believe the way you are communicating can effectively change hearts and minds. I do. And and that's why I was so happy to have you and the Equal Rights Institute on the show. Um, so tell them how they can keep communicating with you, following you, because I want everyone to keep supporting you guys. You can follow us at Equal Rights Institute on any platform. So if you're on Facebook, it's at Equal Rights Institute, Twitter at Equal Rights Institute, Instagram at Equal Rights Institute. We also have a huge YouTube channel. We also have a podcast. It's called the Equip for Life podcast. And we talk about kind of longer form content. How do you have conversations about abortion? If you just go to our main website, equalrightsinstitute.com, there are links to all of those things. So that would be kind of your main landing page. If you forget everything I just said. You've given me a lot of hope today. I think we're getting closer, not just in, in in with regard to abortion, but in general, the idea of the next generation understanding the really sacredness of all human life. And so I pray that we will continue to pass that torch to a, each generation better and better and better. We will continue to also have conversations on this show as we do every day to kind of bring you closer to the fullness of life that God wants for you. And of course, that is paramount to the dignity of every human life. So with that said, we hope you come back and have another conversation with us. We'll see you next time here on The Full Life.